Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Podcorn. If you've heard our show before, you know we are big fans of Podcorn and use the online platform regularly ourselves. Podcorn is a simple-to-use online marketplace which connects podcasters like us with brands who are looking to sponsor shows of any size. As content creators, we are able to quickly browse sponsorship opportunities which include links to each sponsor's website helping us learn more about the products and brands we think might be a great fit. They can review our profile and learn more about us, too. With Podcorn, there's never a middleman. We can reach out directly to the brands with which we'd love to work, or they can message us, and we can communicate freely about a potential partnership. If you're a podcaster yourself or a brand looking to sponsor host-read ads, creative integrations, guest interviews, and more, with shows like Cold Case Frozen Tundra, we highly recommend Podcorn. Click the link in this show's episode notes, or visit the Brands We Love section of our website to sign up for a Podcorn profile. It's quick, easy, and free. We hope to see you on the Podcorn Marketplace. It's the second week of the excavation in search of the missing remains of Starkey Swenson. Dr. Jordan Karsten, detectives from the Winnebago County Sheriff's Office, technological experts, and students participating in Dr. Karsten's anthropology field study class make their way down the country road that runs from the highway in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, towards the small town of Amro, about 12 miles away. Along that route, the members of the search team passed by a large field dotted with nondescript outbuildings and sheds in various states of repair. On the edge of the field near the road, an old farmhouse sits between several additional structures. On one side, an old Quonset-style airplane hangar is nearly hidden by trees growing around and above it. A lone standing wall, the front of an old shed, connects the hangar to the farmhouse and creates a sort of dramatic entrance to the home's driveway and yard, as if pulling through the gated outpost of an old western mining town. Vehicles are parked throughout the drive and side yards. On the other side of the house, closer to the main road, a single-stall garage, which has been repaired with plywood, is sandwiched tightly between the home and a large pole barn. Various political yard signs and plywood sheets bearing hand-painted messages are mounted to the side of the barn, most visible from the roadway nearby. It's a strange piece of property. In 1983, it was similarly unique, but different. At that time, a runway could be easily seen cutting through the native field grasses behind the farmhouse and connected buildings, which were in slightly better condition, though not by much. Airplanes were parked in the field where farm equipment and old vehicles now reside. In place of the current pole barn, a larger, low-slung building stood. It's painted dark, with a tin roof, and the word food is written in massive white letters near a solitary small window trimmed in white. 
That dark building in front of the farmhouse was then known as the Drop Zone Bar, a ramshackle establishment many might affectionately call a hole in the wall. The type of place so commonly found in towns across the country, it hardly requires a description. A local hangout where a hard day's work would earn you a shot of whiskey and a Pabst Blue Ribbon with your buddies to wind down. It's this location that John C. Andrews told investigators he visited after leaving his ex-wife Claire's home on the night of August 13, 1983, the night of Starkey Swenson's murder, and the same night Suzanne Eggert reported hearing John involved in an altercation with Starkey, which ended with the sound of someone being run over by a car. Passing the former drop zone bar on their drive today, search team members have only a short commute to the property owned by Jean and her family, the site many remember John Andrews visiting during the 80s and 90s, and where he was seen gardening under the cover of darkness with the help of his 1973 Pontiac Trans Am headlights. Some have even reported witnessing him doing this on the night of the murder. It's Jean's property, the site of the search, where last week Dr. Karsten's team uncovered pieces of an old tarp and a strange piece of metal which might possibly be a match for part of a 1950s-era Raleigh bicycle, the same manufacturer and time period as the one owned and ridden by Starkey Swenson on the night of his disappearance. I'm Matt Hiskus, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Episode 9, The Search, Part 2. So I'm here with Dr. Karsten, who's on scene in Wisconsin, continuing his work with his team as they seek to find the missing remains of Starkey Swenson. I'm no longer with him as I had to return home to my day job, but we're going to jump on this call together here to provide an update of the second week. And Dr. Carson, should we probably start before we get too far in with an update on that intriguing piece of metal we found at the site last week? So we thought that that piece of metal looked like it was very likely part of a bicycle. And in fact, it still might be. Uh, the part of a bicycle that we thought that it was was what's known as a dust cap that's found on the outside of a pedal. Um, it honestly matches what many of the dust caps look like on 1950s, early 1960 model Raleigh bicycles and Phillips bicycles, which were manufactured by Raleigh. The trouble here is that we were able to obtain a picture of Starkey Swenson on his bicycle a few years prior to when he went missing. And we could take a look at the dust caps on his pedals, and they're actually conical in shape instead of rounded like the piece of metal that we've got. And so that piece of metal definitely could be part of some bicycle. It just looks like it's probably not part of Starkey Swenson's bicycle. And so although that seemed to be really encouraging initially, after some kind of more thorough investigation, um, we don't think that it's likely part of Starkey Swenson's bicycle. That being said, we're not really sure what it is. Um, and so it may be still something that, uh, you know, kind of furthers our investigation. But at the moment, um, we're still looking into it. So there's, there's still some work being done to determine whether it's potentially another part of a bicycle, although we've yet to find anything that might be a match or even potentially part of a Trans Am, as that was also potentially involved in the altercation, but um, nothing confirmed on, on our end yet. 
not at least for that piece of metal. Speaking of bicycles, um, it is kind of interesting that a bicycle in years previous had been found near the pond that's present on the property. And this was mentioned to us by the people who owned the land itself out there in Omro. And so that bicycle was recovered um, and eventually thrown away. And we don't really know very much about it at this point. Uh, it's something that we're looking into, but it was found and was recovered. Uh, there's some big questions that are still out there and that's, was the bicycle mangled like it had been hit by a car? Was it even close to the type of bicycle that Starkey Swenson actually rode? We don't know. Um, in fact, you know, we, we don't know almost anything about it. It was just mentioned kind of offhand by the folks who own the property. And so that's also pretty interesting. I mean, at this point, that could have a connection to Starkey Swenson. I mean, it could potentially be that his bike was disposed of in the large pond on the property. Um, but it's something that, again, we have to look into and talk to more people who have more knowledge about the situation. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that struck me when I was there with you last week is not only are we finding things as we dig, which we treat each piece as potential evidence and we try to piece it together. Of course, it is a, a farm field that's been plowed for decades and decades and things tend to accumulate under the ground there. But um, the other big thing that struck me was how much we gain just being on the site and around people who were there at the time. And it just seems like these little bits of information just come up here and there that wasn't in the public record or wasn't captured in conversations with police before. But as you sit and talk to the people who were involved, you just kind of hear these little bits and pieces come out and it all starts to fit together and create a picture. Yeah, I think there's some real positives to that, to just be around and hear little pieces of information from people who were there at the time. Uh, another person that we talked to this week was the, the, the man who farms the farm field, and he's been farming it since the early 80s. And so he was able to give us a little bit of better understanding of just what that property is like. I mean, Today, the area that we're searching is primarily wooded. I mean, we're changing that by removing trees and clearing the area for use of ground penetrating radar and excavation. But at the time that John Andrews was present on the property, it was mostly pasture land with very few trees present. In that same area, the farmer was able to tell us about how today what is a bog that's connected to a creek and a pond actually had quite a bit higher water levels back in the 1980s. And so areas today that are, you know, dry sides of this pond were actually underwater um, back at the time in the early 1980s. And so the land didn't look exactly like it does today. And trying to reconstruct that with the help of people who were there at the time 40 years ago has been pretty useful. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And uh, I think it's also been useful with regard to that to take a look at some of the old aerial photographs that you and the detectives have had um, as they show the site as far back as the early 80s when we can get a clearer picture of what it looked like. Yeah, even photos from the family who you know now own the property, uh, Jean's family and her relatives. I mean, we were able to look at some of their old photos and see just how not wooded it was. And so since all those trees have grown since 1983, 
you know, we've got to remove them. And so we're removing those trees with chainsaws and other equipment. And then after they're out of our way, we're able to get into that area and excavate and use ground penetrating radar in an effort to try to find Starkey Swenson. So there was one more interesting piece of material that we found last week. Um, I know teams are and investigators are still potentially looking into it, but have you heard anything new about the canvas tarp-like material that we gathered in fragments from the same pit where we found the metal piece? So we do know a little bit more about it. Uh, people who have been able to take a look at it are quite sure that it's actually like parts of the remains of conveyor belts that were used by some of the paper plants in the Fox Valley. And those old kind of worn out conveyor belts were used by, and still are used by people in the area, typically as like bedding for gardens, um, laid down to kind of smooth out areas. You know, you could use it for landscaping. And so that's what it appears to be, um, at least most of that stuff that we've recovered. It is highly fragmentary, so it is hard to say for sure. But that seems to be the consensus at the moment. Okay. So it sounds like that particular part of the property, which um, we did finish the pit there and yielded that tarp-like material as well as the metal piece, may be just related to typical farming activity on the land, but uh, additional work might still be done on that. Um, as we move into the week two, why don't you talk a little bit about the work that's been done so far this week? So this week, we continued to work on excavating locations indicated as anomalies by ground penetrating radar. And as we excavated those, we did find a lot more glacial rocks. Um, we found some areas that were filled with disturbed soil that probably were from tree falls. We found no artifacts in those, and they looked pretty consistent with, you know, trees that had, had, had fallen down. Um, so we excavated those. We were lucky this week to have Dan Joyce, who is, uh, you know, the recently retired former director of the Kenosha Public Museum, who's also been a guest on this podcast, to come out with his ground penetrating radar uh, and work a whole big chunk of the site. And so this is a part of the site that is a little bit farther back from the farm field where we initially started our excavation. Uh, we've cleared the woods there. It was a lot of buckthorn and kind of, you know, fairly young trees, cleared it with chainsaws and other equipment. And then Dan was able to move through the area um, with the ground penetrating radar, uh, along with uh, some assistance from Hannah Decker, who is one of the students who's helping on the dig. And they were able to find a single promising anomaly. And we actually excavated that on Thursday, the last day of the dig this week. Um, and we were able to find out that it was another one of these glacial rocks, unfortunately. And so it took a lot of effort, um, but at least we were able to find that anomaly and excavate it. Uh, like last week, this week, we had to deal with a little bit of rain issues. And so yeah, on Thursday, um, Thursday's dig was cut short. It was only two hours in length because we ended up getting poured on um, with some pretty, pretty high winds too. So we had to to abandon the work earlier in the morning than I would have liked. Um, but we are still moving forward in terms of some of that work. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning too, that throughout this dig, we've been 
really incredibly lucky both to have Dan on our side, but also um, the Gardner Company, which came out earlier to do GPR at the location. And they really have some great top-of-the-line equipment and helped us find some of our initial targets that we were really interested in digging. But we don't want to leave any stone unturned in this investigation. And Dan's experience as an anthropologist and someone who's used GPR in the search for buried remains in the past is just simply too valuable to pass up. And we're really excited to have him out as well. Oh, yeah. He's a real pro. And so, you know, he he brings a lot to the table, obviously, in terms of looking at the data, looking at the real nuances to try to find buried human remains. Um, In addition to using the GPR and digging at the targets and clearing the forest, which takes a lot of effort, we also started to expand some of our earlier excavation units. So some of those like two meters by two meters, a meter by meter, some three meters by, you know, two meters. And we started to actually dig in the areas in between just to be sure that if in case the GPR missed Starkey Swenson's remains, that we would still cover it in terms of our excavation. And so my students were really kicking ass, to be honest, and excavating like machines. Um, We were using old Purina kitty litter buckets that we'd stuff full of soil uh, that would weigh like 60 pounds. And we were carrying those out of the area and dumping them out and screening and you know looking at the dirt. But it was a really physically demanding couple of days out there. And we've really created just a giant pit that we've excavated down to look at the stratigraphy, to look for human remains, to look for any artifacts of interest. One thing that we did find this week in those excavations was a small piece of broken glass. And the small piece of broken glass potentially uh, is a headlight from a car, which is kind of interesting because we haven't found really anything automotive in the entire area. And so a broken piece of headlight obviously could connect to the damaged Trans Am that John Andrews was driving. You know, it's known that the day after Starkey Swenson's disappearance that his Trans Am's front end was damaged. Um, And so this could be an interesting, you know, find. We don't know yet. We just found it. And so we need to do a lot more investigation to see exactly what type of headlight this piece of glass comes from. Does it match up with the Trans Am? And even was the damage on Andrew's Trans Am's front end consistent with, you know, having some broken headlights? And this is something we have to look into. I mean, like I said, this find is really fresh. It could be really exciting. Um, but it's something that's going to require a little bit more background work on. Yeah, it's it's definitely exciting to me. And I remember your call when you were in the field and first found it and asked me to see if I could pull up some photos for you to see if it might be a headlight. And one of the key indicators was that it's quite heavily ridged and real glass, which are two elements of older style headlamps, uh, particularly those used in muscle cars from the area. So it does have some potential there. And we do know, if you remember, that the day after Suzanne Eggert heard the altercation at the Shattuck Middle School, she and John went out to lunch. So this is Friday, August 14. And Suzanne noticed John had an injured hand. And we know that John must have been concerned about the fact that his vehicle was looking damaged because he didn't just reply to her 
how he injured his hand, which he said was while changing a tire for two women. But he also added to the end of that, that by the way, I, I drove over a curb in the process and damaged my car. And I think that that's really telling there that at the last time, his girlfriend at the time, Suzanne had seen him, no damage on his car. The next time he sees her, he feels the need to explain that through something. Yeah, and I think that if there's any way that we can show that this headlight piece is a match for John Andrews Trans Am, it's really important for our excavation because it shows us that the background information was all right. And that that means we're in the right spot, that he was there with his car, that a broken piece of his car fell off. And that really, you know, is just pointing us. It's, it's an encouraging sign. and It shows that we're looking in the right area. And so it could be really useful and interesting find, at least in terms of kind of cluing us in to the fact that we are looking in the right spot. Another cool development this week, I mean, not in terms of a find, but um, we had a visitor to the site and that was Jan Coakley. And so Jan is Starkey Swenson's daughter. And Jan's actually who initially reported him missing to the police. And so Jan came down and actually kind of illuminated or provided a little more information on some aspects of the time period right around and right before Starkey Swenson went missing. One of the things that she brought up, and I think that this is, you know, to me, telling, is that prior to his disappearance, he told Jan that he was scared of John Andrews. And that was because John Andrews had called him up and threatened him. And so he was literally afraid. Jan said that she could see the fears, the fear, excuse me, in Starkey Swenson's eyes. And, you know, you can just put this all together, right? I mean, there's the circumstantial stuff that we've covered on this podcast that indicates John Andrews killed Starkey Swenson. But then when you start to understand that Andrews was calling Swenson, you know, threatening him and telling people like Suzanne Eggert that he wanted to kill Starkey Swenson, you start to really realize how motivated he was to do this and how prepared he was to kill Starkey Swenson, I think, if the opportunity came up. And unfortunately, it did. And so, you know, hearing that from Jan was, to me, really um, kind of interesting and illuminating. Um, and she's convinced that we're looking in the right area. And for me, it was a really motivating conversation because if we can find Starkey, you know, we're like you said earlier, Matt, we're not going to leave any stone unturned. We're going to search the property as thoroughly as possible uh, and, and make sure that we know he's either for sure not on the property or we'll find him. Yeah. And, and I think you brought up a really important point there. I'm sure those who have been following this story, I know it's true of myself when I was out there and now back at home working offsite on the story. You, you start out the search with the sense you're very motivated, you're excited. And one interesting thing is at any moment, you can unearth the bit of information that changes everything. And it keeps you motivated and excited. But you also get this feeling that, you know, we're, we're burning through GPR hits and there's plenty more to go. And there's plenty more locations that, that are of interest on that site. But you start to wonder if you're actually going to find him. And it's really great to hear from somebody 
who believes in you, who believes in the work you're doing, who is around at the time and believes it's plausible. And it's just a little reminder that GPR is a tool. Anything else that we're doing is a tool, but really the, the true solve and proof that he is or is not on the land is getting in there and digging and really moving the dirt and seeing what's under it. Yeah, it's really hard work. Uh, it's really, it's a ton of physical labor, as my students now know, uh, for those of them that haven't, hadn't had a lot of, you know, excavating experience day after day after day. Um, but I think that it's, it's true. We have to ground truth everything. We have to dig everywhere. We have to remove trees that weren't there. And that's the only way that we 100% know what happened. But this coming week, we're preparing for our last week of this dig season. And we're going to be out there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, um, you know, we're hoping for the best. And we're going to have Dan Joyce back out there with his GPR. Uh, and hopefully we'll get some more information on the bike that was found in the pond and the piece of glass that looks like it's probably headlight. And definitely, you know, the, the biggest thing, hopefully we find the remains of Starty Swenson. Should we do a quick rundown of sort of what's been found to this point and say whether it's interesting, whether it's moving out of the realm of interesting, and then what we're most excited about moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think the original piece we thought was a bicycle, small metal cap, uh, potentially bicycle piece. It could still be interesting. We just don't know. But the one thing we do know is it's not a dust cap from Starkey Swenson's bicycle. So is it maybe a little less interesting than we thought? Yeah, maybe. Um, in terms of the headlight, the headlight's very interesting. I think that that one could end up being really important, um, but it's going to take a lot more research. Um, information we could get on a bicycle that was found near the property could be helpful. Unfortunately, it's been thrown away. And so that one's probably not going to ever be a ton of information, but it could provide us with a little more background on what's going on at the site. Um, and so I think that is generally where we're at in terms of the current finds, um, and what we're looking into. Um, but again, hopefully we find Starkey's actual remains in the upcoming days of the dig. And you're also shifting your strategy a little bit from digging individual test pits at each GPR hit, which you guys are going to continue doing, but why don't you mention a little bit what else you're going to be doing in addition to that? Yeah, I mean, we're going to dig every spot of the property that we can. So we know the area that is most likely where John Andrews was active. And so there's not going to be any dirt there that we leave unexcavated. Um, and so we'll dig down to the point where we can see intact stratigraphy, which at this site is really close to the water table. And so we're going to dig that everywhere. And so it's going to take a lot of effort and a, uh, a lot of you know, physical labor. But we're going to make sure that there's not any part of this area that's not excavated. And so we'll be able to say for sure if Starkey Swenson's there or he's not. Yeah, that's interesting. So rather than a bunch of individual square holes dug down, you're going to end up with one giant level spread across the most likely area that's all been dug down to the depth. That's right. Takes a lot of physical labor, but it's, in my opinion, it's really worth it. Okay, well, um, sounds like we've got some exciting possibilities as we move forward. Hopefully more comes out on that headlight, um, especially since it's something that could potentially 
get caught in clothing or skin or something should that have been part of the incident. Um, and hopefully the search is fruitful and we're going to try to reach out to Jan and see if she'd like to speak with us a little more. And hopefully we can, uh, have a chance to have a conversation with her and put that here on this podcast as well. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Good luck. Thanks. If you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, we highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind the scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay. <laughs>